Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Today's guest is Wolf Mueller. Wolf is a highly seasoned veteran of the recording industry, and I had the privilege of meeting with him in Bremen last month, where we had a very long and interesting conversation. To my delight, Wolf gladly agreed to be a guest on our podcast, and I'm very excited to share this episode with everybody. First, I want to give a little background on who this man is. In 1999, Wolf became Vice President of International Marketing Classics and Jazz for Universal Music. Here he was responsible for international marketing efforts for all classics and jazz priorities worldwide, as well as all local signings on the MRC Jazz and MRC Classics labels. In 2003, the role of A&R for the MRC label was added to his responsibilities, and it was during this period that Wolf signed acts like Madeline Peru, Dee Dee Bridgewater, Michael Brecker, and John Schofield. In 2010, Wolf started a new company called All In Music Service, a consulting company for the music industry. Universal Music Group International soon became his first client, and at the same time, All In Music Service acts as the European tour coordinator for artists like Branford Marsalis, James Carter, Jane Monheit, and Karen Allison. In 2012, All In Music Service signed an exclusive jazz A&R agreement with Sony Classical International to revive and build the historic OK Jazz label. Wolf, thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. My pleasure. Great. Yeah. Uh, where are you? Where are we speaking to you from today? I'm sitting in Madrid, in Spain, I'm working from home, which is uh, something I. At the beginning, I uh, dreaded a little bit after 28 years working for a multinational company. But now I got used to it and I thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah, well, I know what it's like to work from home. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, listen, thanks again for taking the time to talk with me. Um, it was nice to finally meet you last month. We had worked together years ago when I was doing management and booking for the guitarist Julian Lodge. And I very much enjoyed working with you. And it's such a small world, the music industry, and I had never met you. So it was wonderful to talk uh, at the conference last month. Um, to get started, can you tell me the story of how did you end up becoming a VP at Universal Music? It started actually in Vienna, in Austria. Um, I was a student of uh, journalism and politics, um, and, and not the best one, I have to admit. <laughs> um, but on the side, I was running uh, a little jazz club called Miles Miles with some friends. Uh, I had started a jazz magazine called Jazz Life with a bunch of other friends. So I was uh, kind of involved in the jazz scene. And then when the studying didn't really move any further, I started to work for Polygram uh, at their input music service. And... Um, I basically introduced a bunch of U.S. labels to Austria at the time, Grammar Vision and a few other smaller ones. Then I imported the whole uh, fantasy milestone prestige stuff, and uh, we made some pretty nice turnover. And the boss said, okay, the guy seems to have an idea what he's doing. Let's see whether he can deal with some of the other stuff. And I got promoted and I did some pop stuff. But then I brought ECM to the, the company, in Austria, and and at one point I wanted to start uh, make records with Austrian jazz musicians. 
You know, meanwhile, I was the head of marketing for all the pop stuff. So the guys in the Polygram head office in London, you know, were saying, you know, there's a guy who knows the marketing, there's a guy who knows his jazz, and they wanted to do something on a more global coordinated level. And they asked me if I was interested in doing it. And I went to London and picked up that job uh, and started as a jazz man, basically. The classical part came later. But jazz was always my kind of, my laugh in terms of music. Um, it's uh, something my father played at home and kind of I got used to the sounds, I guess. And did you ever play an instrument yourself? No, I mean, I, I started to play a little bit of guitar at one point, but I had an accident and uh, I couldn't play for a while. And the friend I had started it with was so far ahead that I lost interest. You know? So I'm... All I know about music is basically uh, from listening and uh, reading tons and tons of books about biographies and whatever else. Well, and of course, getting to work with a lot of these major artists probably helps too. Yeah, that, that came at a later point, but it definitely helped. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, if you look at the, 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 the history of the things I've done from embassy to OK, you will find a lot of artists are actually the same, you know, um, which assigned to, to embassy or I worked with at embassy universal uh, and, and which I'm working with now because for me, it's important that I like what these artists are doing. You know, there, is, and there has to be a kind of relationship in a sense. Uh, I trust them musically. They trust me in what I do, I guess. Uh, otherwise, you know, with Didi Bridgewater, for example, I've worked since over 20 years. Well, that's amazing. I mean, it's, this is definitely a relationship business. <laughs> it definitely is. You know, and as you said, it is. The music business is a small business anyway. The jazz part in it is even smaller. If you if you look at it, not only in terms of turnover, I mean, it used to be about 3%. Now it's probably 1.8% of the music business. Um, but, but, but the people in there, you know, I mean, over the years in companies and different uh, things, I've worked with a lot of people, but we all come together again at one point. You know, some of the colleagues I used to work with at, Polygram Universal are running labels nowadays. One friend is running MPS out of Berlin. Uh, another one restarted the uh, Impulse in Paris. You know, it's a, it's a good small kind of group. And, and I think at the end of the day, we, we don't have that much kind of uh, competition, even so we have it, obviously, but we are all in it for the greater good of jazz, if you want, you know. Absolutely. It's a very passionate group of people. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about stuff you've been doing recently. And in the intro, I mentioned that you've been working very hard for the last five years to help build up the OK label. Why did Sony decide it was time to revive the label after so many years? It wasn't quite as that. Um, the guy who runs Sony class. Uh, the guy I know from Vienna, his name is Bogdan Rostchich, and he used to work at Universal. He was running uh, Decca Records for a while, yeah. And he saw me, and we know each other from there. And and when he took over Sony Classical, after three years, he had the company running, and they were doing good business. But he wanted to add to the core classical and to the crossover classical stuff 
he wanted to add jazz to it. And there is, at the time, there was nobody doing jazz within Sony, you know, except the cattle runs through the legacy department, you know. So he called me after I told him that I, uh, my contract with Universal as a consultant would run out. A few months later, he called me and said, you know, let's talk. Uh, and I did a little bit of homework. I checked a little bit which labels the Sony group owned, which brands in the jazz world. And I came across okay. And for what I had in mind, it seemed to be the natural choice. You know, you don't want to call something you do Sony jazz. That doesn't mean anything, you know. But okay had this illustrious history uh, and it was actually me being German, it was founded by a German, you know, in 1980, so it's going to be 100 years old next year and and that guy had a very very particular vision because he was actually an independent record company at the time, if you want to compare it with now, he was not a man, Columbia and RCA Richter were the majors and OK was the independent so he said, I have to do records that they do, maybe a little bit better, but then I have to find areas where the majors of the time don't work in. So he was the first guy who produced actually a female Afro-American blues singer and, uh, and had a huge hit with Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues in 1921. But beside that, he did some classical music, but he imported and recorded himself folk music from Czechia, Poland, Germany, uh, Jewish music, and sold them to the immigrants in America. So he was really already thinking about how to do things different at the time where there was basically some kind of, if you want to vote the wheels, it was the big scene, you know, the easy kind of stuff, you know. And, um, and he was, at the later point, the first one who recorded Hillbilly, as it was called then, you know. A very interesting character, that um, that guy, Mr. Heinemann, um, but with a vision for a small unit, there, for his label to find its own niche in a, in, a, in a market that wouldn't be covered by the bigger companies. He's a true pioneer, too. Yeah, and in many ways, I think he was, because he actually came from the hardware business. And again, that's another interesting comparison, because they all made okay, made players, you know, record players, turntables or whatever you want to call it. Uh, at that time, they came in big boxes, gramophones. He manufactured the needles for it and everything. So he always at Columbia and I say Victor actually at the same time did the same thing. They did both. Yeah? Uh, and you look further into the music industry, actually uh, up until the 90s when uh, uh, the combination of hardware and software was always a given. Philips, as the inventor of the CD, owned Polygram records that gave them enough ammunition to push thousands and thousands of CDs titles into the marketplace. Nowadays, the, the, what now would be the hardware, the, the, the iPod or whatever else, or the phones or whatever, is not connected to the to the, the guys who own the music, so there's a, there's a different business model here, two part two part nowadays. But historically, it was all like that. The other thing which he did, uh, 
he actually was the first guy before Alan Lomax who sent his engineers out uh, to record in theaters or in, in hotel lounges uh, and not only in studios. So he, he was the first actually asking and having uh, on location recordings done as well. It's amazing. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about some of the things that you're most proud of since you've begun this rebuilding initiative and what are some of the projects you've been working on? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing because I'm, you know, I'm doing it quite a long time. Now, the OK thing is five years old next year. Um, well, this year, actually, I started in October, but the first record came out in April 13th. And... Uh, and there are a bunch of records I'm actually really proud about. I mean, you know, uh, working with Sonny Rollins is, is something, uh, and trying to, to find ways to be creative with his catalog of live recordings. Sonny can't play anymore. Uh, but we'll still try to figure ways to do things with what is there from the recordings he has. And I hope we can do a few more of these uh, compilations. Even so, I have one idea which we are working on right now that takes it a little bit further. Um, you know, um, I think that some of the younger artists I'm working with, I'm really happy to be associated with. Uh, Theo Crockett, a young trumpet player, I think is an incredible talent that blends modern R&B and hip-hop with the jazz tradition in a very, very easy accessible, very musically deep way, um, and he's, he's attracting a younger audience, and the, the interesting part about that is he becomes an artist, he actually gets big numbers in streaming, you know, which is different to, to most of the other core jazz artists where streaming doesn't mean that much, you know. Um, of course, working with Dave Holland, uh, you know, I'm one of the records I really like a lot is the, the new Somi album, Petita Freak, which I think is very, very good, uh, that just came out. Dave Holland, there, there are a bunch of things. Uh, uh, you know, I, I sign these artists because I believe in the artist. What advice would you have for an artist, like a new artist, who's trying to become signed to a label? Well, you know, I talk to a lot of young artists because I do twice a year, I do a Kind of lectures to young jazz musicians. Uh, there's a there's a two formats. One is coming from the UK. It's called Take Five for young artists, and the other one is the Montreux Academy from the Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland, uh, because they have the piano, guitar, and vocal competition every year. Then after the summer, these finalists are coming for one week to Switzerland and have music workshops with established artists like Kurt Rosenwinkel or um, Niels Peter Molber to have a European artist there. Um, but on the other hand, they're getting, uh, you know, lectures about the music business from different people throughout the week. So it's a very intense period for them. But I think it's very important that the, the musicians understand at least the basics, how things work, you know. So I talk to them a lot and I basically say, you know, uh, because it depends, the advice is different from each stage in the career. A new artist basically has to do most of the work in terms of booking and 
management work on their own. It's not that common that they have these things set up when they start. But the most important thing I always say, you know, go out and play, work as a sideman with as many people as you can, because that's going to develop your personality, your style. Because once you are playing with people who have already a reputation, you have to stand on your own next to them. And that's what you've got to learn. And that's how your individuality will will be growing and you can express yourself better. And then step by step, you do all these other things. And, you know, it's difficult out there because there are so many good artists. Not enough labels, not enough clubs to play. It's tough. Right. On the other side of that, when we're talking about working with new artists and how they can get signed to a label is your experience with established artists. So when you work with someone like John Schofield or Dee Dee Bridgewater or Charlie Hayden, what is it that you've been noticing about them that is characteristic of them having experience and um, being successful? Is there anything that is similar to artists of that caliber that you've noticed? No, not really. I think because everybody has his or her own story, you know. Um, that's an interesting thing because the experiences are different. Uh, you know, you can talk to Schofield and he can tell you tons of stories about, you know, when he was with Miles, you know, and what he learned in Miles Davis's group and how they approached things. And you can talk about the same thing in a similar way where you could with Charlie Hayden, the Baron at Coleman, you know. And Wynette would even confirm that when I had the chance to talk to him, you know. But it's still a different experience, you know. Um, so, no, they have to go their own way because in many ways they're playing with certain musicians because of the way they do things. And within that confinement, they make their experiences, which, again, you know, uh, is a learning process and puts them in, on a different level of expression again, you know. I mean, Charlie Hayden was a very interesting guy to work with. Um, and he could have, he could be difficult. But the moment he plays instrument, it was just like unbelievable, you know. He had such a beautiful, and he was like such an amazing storytell on on his instrument, uh, you know, any slight uh, disagreement uh, disappeared immediately. You know? I mean, it, it, it's for me, the history of these musicians, whether it's, uh, you know, Brantford, who has a completely different story than his brother, in a way, you know, and, uh, and therefore there, there is nothing comparable and they all deal with it in a different way. I mean, nobody here is, is, uh, like a pop star, like a diva or something. I haven't experienced that. I think I met one and I don't want to put out names here. But so far in all these years, all the jazz artists I worked with have actually been very nice human beings. You know, and, and that's for me the most important part. You know, and it has to do with the music because it's the music itself is about communication. And, and if you can't communicate, communicate with people, then you have a problem. And these guys have to do it all the time, you know. Uh, and that opens them up to other human beings. Uh, for me, that's that's a very clear thing, you know. Right. I want to shift our conversation just a little bit now. 
and talk about the impact of technology on the recording industry, which of course has changed big time since you started. Why do you think it took independent third-party companies like Apple and Spotify to embrace digital as a means of distribution instead of traditional record labels? Well, that's a very good question, I think. I think, you know, if it seems that the, the recording history is, is, a, is a story of ups and downs with crises and recoveries and everything. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it's, I've, I've been in the industry, the started in the industry just after the CD was introduced. So that was like the golden age because there was a lot of money in the business at that time. And I think, yeah, I think the companies got a little bit blind to what was going out there, you know. Um, I remember big meetings, international meetings, where we had uh, workshops to talk about, and and there was even in the 90s already where we were thinking about a portable device, but it was still something physical. Nobody in the industry took digital that serious. I think that I just couldn't imagine it. And, and they saw the, 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 the internet guys, some kind of nerds or something, you know. Uh, and, and, and they lost, they missed the boat, you know. And, and the other thing was the moment Polygram or Universal was now, Polygon was sold by Philips, the electronics company, the hard uh, wear maker, to Universal. That break, I think, helped as well in a negative way because they lost the touch to the people who actually made these things that carried music. Apple created that thing, but they didn't have anything to put on. So, and if you look at Apple at the beginning, that has changed slightly now. If you look at Apple at the beginning, they were not really interested in the music. They were interested in selling their their digital music carriers, you know, the machines, the iPods, you know. Um, now with with the world changing again, and you don't have a special iPod anymore, and you don't really download, but everything is on your mobile phone. You know, it is about the content, not the hardware that much anymore. They're still right, doing both right. on Apple uh, in, in a very clever way as well. Um, and I think that uh, if you look where Google Music made a deal with Samsung, makes perfect, perfectly sense, you know. Get the music through the hardware into as many hands as possible, you know. So uh, I think the music industry not being connected to the to the Hardware anymore lost the sight of how do I get my music to that next generation? Because if you look at it, the way the music was distributed or get to the people has changed many times over the, the history of the music. Music is made a little bit. You still have to go into the studio and record. You know, that hasn't changed. You know, the recording, okay, that's a different story, but you have to record the stuff somewhere, you know. And whether you then have a physical carrier or not, that's just a different story, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> whether you have an LP or a CD or a cassette, 
you know, this is the carrier. Um, that's not so important. I think that creating the music is still the most important step. We now, now in a like this, have to figure out how we're going to get our jazz audience to the music. Because at the moment, the platforms that are out there, they are all built on a pop model. Yeah, one thing that I've thought about is the similarity between classical music and jazz and the idea of a whole album is is always been c- consistent whereas pop music for a long time has traditionally been about the top of the charts and finding one or two songs from an album that can be played on the radio. So the whole concept of the album is important in pop music but is not the same for a jazz musician or classical. That makes it really difficult for these types of artists to learn how to adapt to streaming or single downloads. I, you know what? I don't think the artists need to adapt. I think we have to find with Amazon and Apple and all these guys who are doing this a, a way to present the music differently. You know, If you look at classical, especially core classical, they have an even bigger problem than jazz mm-hmm. with the streaming because it's a repertoire problem. Right. You know? Right. You know? Because... The Beethoven's ninth is Beethoven's ninth. The, 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 the differences are minimal yeah. when you have the different versions. But it, it depends whether Keith Jarrett plays a jazz standard or, um, I don't know, uh, Jared Clayton. It's a completely different thing, you know? Right. So there's an advantage for the jazz world to a degree. The point is here, there are two things that will change. One is the listening behavior of the, the the jazz and classical audience is not that much on the go as the pop world is. It's more a good sound quality at home and you want the information. Who is playing on that track? When was it recorded? Where wrote the song? All that kind of stuff. And then the classical is, who is the soloist? Who is the conductor? What orchestra? You know, all these kind of things. You know? So, this info you don't get yet online, yeah, in most cases. So that's something which is probably a pain in the neck to adjust all the metadata which they have anyway on the same level from all the different companies. But I think it's something that's doable to present the music in a way that the jazz consumer will will appreciate. Because what is changing already is that the computer who is for the jazz audience, uh, which is a bit older, in the study and, and not in the living room where the stereo is, you know, that's changing because most of the new television have building computers where you can go online and listen and Spotify and whatever else. So that behavior is going to move into a digital world. If you want to have the sound of the old things, you can buy for 250 bucks a, a digital analog converter and it sounds like the old stuff but still coming from your telly you know not a problem so all these things are there the only problem is there is really no home yet online for our music in a way that you say i want i want to hear this and i want to buy the cd i want to stream it i want to download it i want whatever have recommendations from people that like Herbie Hankel. Herbie is always out there. He knows who the new guys are. With a recommendation, keep it simple. And it's like going to your old record store. There's the guy who knows what you buy, 
and he tells you, oh, I have this new album, check it out, you know? That would be cool. It's not there yet. I'm, I'm sure somebody will do it one day because I think it's too big a business even so it's only 1.8% for the jazz world of the big music business. It's still a lot of money. Given the digital environment then, what are some examples of value that a record label can still offer artists? I think what the record that the, the function of the record label, as I can see it, has changed. Uh, it's less A&R, to be honest. The artists have much more uh, access to the means of production. So if I'm an artist and I know what I want, I can do anything I want. I can have uh, pledge music, Kickstarter, whatever crowdfunding campaign, get the money and, and do it, you know, and pay the rest myself, whatever. Um, where the label comes in, you still want to make people aware that you have a record out. That means in, in, in marketing promotion and global distribution is where the label comes in. And, you know, and in most cases, I think that's a pretty important part because if you want to do everything on your own, how do you make people aware? Through your own website? That means only the people who go to your website or you're connected with on Facebook know that you have a record out. You know, you have, if you want to build things, there's still the old way beside the new way of doing the marketing. It has to be a combination of two. And especially in our world, you have to go out and play. You know, that's still the best promotion you can do. A good tour, it's always better when you connect the album release and with the tour and, and the whole kind of setup makes sense and leads into people being aware that you have a record out, that you come to their town and play there. And if they don't have a record store, they don't go to the gig, you sell them the CD there, or if they want to stream it or buy it, that's fine. But you have to still create this awareness around the event of an album release. And for me, it has to be an event. Just putting a record out, you know, there are too many records out there anyway. You know? Yeah. You mentioned D.D. Uh, Bridgewater has a new project coming out in the fall. What would you like to see happen with the OK label in the next three to five years? What are some new projects? What are some of the bigger goals you're focused on? Well, you know, we have won a Grammy. We got a bunch of Grammy nominations. We won a few German Grammys. They're called the Echo Award. Um, so... Some things I guess we're doing right, and I'm quite happy about that. So I, I want that to continue because that's important record. Um, for, you know, we are, we are in a different situation than most of the other labels uh, because Blue Note and Verve and, and these labels, they have their own catalogs. So there's always a little bit of an extra make things work. For me, I have to make every single release work because I do not have the catalog. It's a different department within Sony where they are structured. So I don't have a problem with that. I just have to work differently. So for me, it is all about making records that we can sell. We only do 10 records a year anyway. So it has to be very focused. And with this 10, I have the people in the markets giving them attention and focus as well. Uh, and... And what we need is probably like everybody either develop one of the younger acts we have on the label into the bigger selling 
artist or sign one because you know you need you need a dwarf needs a Diana Crawl and Blue Note needs Gregory Porter and Nora Jones to make the whole thing work um, because with that success it allows you to do a few smaller things to develop into the future so that's what I want make good records have success with my artist everybody is happy and uh, and continue doing it because I think it's important this, this there's so much great music out there and collectively between you know Universal and us and Motima and some of these great independents uh, back avenue where we can cover that and we can create uh, a nice contemporary catalog of what this improvised music scene is today. Well, you've covered a lot of different topics in this conversation. Maybe to wrap up what we're talking about, who are some artists you've been listening to lately that everybody listening to the podcast episode should check out? There's a pianist in Belgium, a guy from Belgium. Uh, his name is Jeff Neve. He had a record that's called Spirit Control. Spirit Control, Jeff Nev. Well, I think this might be a good point to um, say goodbye, but first I have to thank you again very much for your time today and uh, speaking with me, and I very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, Wolf. Pleasure, thank you.